So last week, I tried to make the argument that the Bible is authoritative for our faith and practice. And what I mean by faith and practice is the content of what we believe, so our theological beliefs, and then by practice, I mean the way that we put those beliefs to work, the way they take expression in how we live and what we do and what we include in a, a morning worship service. But uh, there are two unavoidable realities when we think about the Bible as our ultimate guide for faith and practice. The first is that the Bible is not self-interpreting, okay? The Bible doesn't interpret itself. Now, for some of you who are thinking, but I learned that we interpret Scripture with Scripture. Well, that's true, but when we talk about interpreting Scripture with Scripture— All we're saying is that we take the easier to understand parts of the Bible and interpret the harder to understand parts of the Bible in light of the easier to understand parts of the Bible. But none of the Bible is self-interpreting. That is to say, we're reading it and we're interpreting it. We're 2,000 years removed from the writing of these texts. We're in a different culture and context and situation. We have different questions. And so when we read the Bible, we need to recognize that we're removed from its original setting So there's a danger that comes. Because the Bible requires interpretation, there's a danger that we might elevate our interpretation of a text to be as authoritative as the Bible itself is. So while we might think we understand what this text means and then go on to proclaim anyone who disagrees with this is violating the scripture, we we really need to step back and say, but what if my interpretation's wrong? And, and what if the people that I'm arguing against actually love the Bible and God as well? And what if they're arriving at a different interpretation? So there's a call for humility in our treatment of the Bible and in our application of the Bible because the Bible requires interpretation. Um, so what, what looks like a plain reading to us, you know, isn't this obvious to everybody? Well, the fact that other people might disagree with us means that it might not be obvious. And so this idea of a plain reading of scripture, I think we need to hold more loosely. So I think the Bible by God's spirit is perceptible. We can read it, we can understand it. But the very nature of the Bible is that it's a community document. That is to say, it doesn't belong to me. I don't have authority over it. You don't have authority over it. So we need to read it in community with others and with the larger church community to understand how the texts have been received over time and in various places. Okay, so the Bible's not self-interpreting. I, so then I guess I have four points here. First, we should seek to read the Bible in community with others, both living and dead. So, uh, you know, that involves commentaries at times. That involves uh, a group reading at church. That involves listening to believers in Africa or Asia or other places who are receiving a text. Uh, one example of this, I'm reading a book on... Um, the text in 1 Timothy about uh, women not being permitted to teach or have authority, and a chapter in this book that I'm reading is a a Muslim area reception of this text. So how do people who are coming out of a Muslim background think in Saudi Arabia, how does this text hit them? And how is that different than it hits us? And one of the things that's helpful about that is probably the way women and men were viewed in the ancient times is probably closer to this Arabic context than our own context. And so we can learn from, you know, what's a plain reading of the text to them, you know, and and how is that different than what I think 
is a plain reading of the text. So reading in community is, is really important. And then, of course, as we run into disagreements with people on the interpretation of text and, and applying those texts, I think we need to just ask um, in a charitable way, how did you get there? And, and what are you prioritizing that might be the same as what I'm prioritizing and what might be different? And I think that's going to solve a lot of division problems in a church, even as we think about how worship practices should look, is if we can charitably say, um, I'm interpreting this text to you, and so are you, so let's, let's talk about it and, and see what we come up with. Second, the Bible does not address everything that we, we might want it to address. The Bible is not this dictionary with every category of life and everything in it that we want to be in it. So this does not mean that the Bible isn't sufficient or supreme. It just simply means that the Bible doesn't address all of the questions that you and I might have particularly. And it doesn't talk about all the topics that you and I might want it to talk about. Part of that is just because we're separated from when these texts were written. And so we might want to say, what does the Bible say about speeding on the highway? Well, the reality is there weren't cars and there, were, there weren't issues like that that the biblical authors were concerned to deal with. And so instead, what we have to do is to grow in our moral faculties and learn how to be gospel-like people and navigate the world in a way that prioritizes love for God and love for others. And then we can extrapolate from that. Uh, maybe we shouldn't have an unlimited speed zone in front of a school. You know, kids are there. We want to love people. You know, so, so the way we get to our practice comes through a process of theologizing because the Bible doesn't talk about everything specifically in the way that we want it to talk about things. So it's not an instruction manual. It's instead a, the story of God's redemptive work in history. And there are instructions that are included along the way, you know, but... but Actually, if you look at the majority of the Bible, it's not primarily um, instruction, command, do this, don't do this sort of statements. Okay? So uh, I gave an example last week of our worship services and marriage ceremonies. The Bible cares about marriage, and it has a lot to say about marriage, but it actually has almost nothing to say about how you get married, either dating or, or leading up to the thing that happens when you go from not married to married, whatever that should be. And we, we say, well, we should have a wedding ceremony. And we think certain things should be included in that ceremony. But the Bible doesn't actually ever instruct wedding ceremonies. And the, the ones that we get are really gross. We have, you know, this guy who gets drunk and sleeps with the sister of the person he thinks he's going to marry, and that's about all we get in really one of the early wedding ceremonies. Or, or another guy whose mom died, and then a servant brought a wife for him, and the way he consoled himself was to get married, I guess. Virtually no ceremony involved. So when we look at the Bible there, and then merging into the New Testament, we have zero examples of people going from not married to married, at least as far as I can find. Uh, maybe, maybe you can find an illustration in the New Testament of someone being not married and going to married, but we just have nothing about ceremonies. But we do have instructions about marriage where we say, okay, a man and a woman are involved. There, there's a relationship that's now exclusive that involves faithfulness and fidelity and love and sacrifice. And uh, it seems to always involve some level of community. 
So then we extrapolate from that. We should have a ceremony that emphasizes the heightened nature of this commitment, and we should include things in that ceremony that indicate this couple is now being defined in terms of faithfulness and love and honor and respect. And so we do that in terms of vows. We'll maybe have some scriptures read, you know, some other things. But, but there's no such thing as a biblical wedding ceremony. There, there might be something like a theological wedding ceremony, but the Bible doesn't give us a wedding ceremony. This makes sense, I think, where we start to see how a lot of what we hold dear is not directly from the Bible. The same, I I think our morning services are very analogous to wedding ceremonies. We, We know that we should worship God. We know that we're a community of people who have certain obligations and responsibilities to each other, and we're formed out of a response to the gospel. And, and, there seems to be a really early pattern illustrated in the scriptures of meeting on the day of the resurrection. But beyond that, we don't have a lot of specifics about what ought to take place in a worship gathering. And so we need to look at the Bible as our source of supreme authority, ultimate and final authority. But we also very early on begin to recognize we have to start to reach outside of the Bible to know how these other aspects of life and the particulars of these things ought to take shape. I'm going to pause there. Any questions? That's a bit of a review from last week. Okay. I One of the things that I think that recognition should engender within us is a greater uh, love for the Bible and greater uh, commitment to the scriptures because we're starting to recognize that the scriptures are a particular kind of document. And I think what happens a lot of times is that the Bible gets talked about as if it's an instruction manual with instructions for every point of life in every decision you need to make, and in everything that needs to happen. And so we, we get this idea about the Bible, but then really the things that we start applying are applications of an interpretation. And then down the road, uh, people, particularly I think people my age, start to look at that and say, well, that's not in the Bible, and that's not in the Bible, and that's not in the Bible, and well, the Bible doesn't really matter at all anymore. Be- because it's been talked about as if there's no extra biblical sources that are informing a way of life. Now, I I want to say that if we can recognize the Bible isn't an instruction manual, we can cherish it more deeply and use it more rightly. Um, Just as with maybe an illustration is the tools in your toolbox, once you realize that your, your wrench is not a hammer, you can value that wrench more appropriately and you can value the hammer more appropriately and you can put the tools to use in the right way and use the right tool for the right job and accomplish a project way, way more effectively. I think that's what's going to go on here. But that automatically raises the question, if, the, if we need more than the Bible to know what should happen on a Sunday morning service in a gathering like that or a marriage ceremony or whatever else, what, what other sources can we use? Where should we look to um, arrive at good conclusions on these sorts of things? Well, I want to talk today about uh, tradition, church tradition, as one of the primary sources that we look to as we seek to form the practice that, are, that is informed by our theology, and in fact, that even contributes to the formation of our theology.
So tradition, I think this starts on page 13 for you. Uh, if you have been growing up in the Baptist world like me, there's something like a, a Baptist allergic reaction to the word tradition. And that reaction is really good and really bad. There are good reasons to have your hackles raised when you start hearing that tradition should be an important part of our church life. That's because tradition has been abused and bad traditions have been imported. And, and in fact, sometimes tradition is revered so highly that it's almost as if the Bible doesn't matter anymore. And, it, and in fact, there are times as we look at church history where tradition actually just goes against the scriptures. And there's a large community of Christians who are saying it goes against the scriptures. But over time, especially in the Roman Catholic Church, there's this segment who are in spiritual authority. And so their tradition in their words trump what the larger community recognized as biblical authority. And that's why you have something like the Reformation. And even as you get to the Reformation, as we look at those documents and, and what those people were aiming for, they weren't aiming to dispose of church authority in totality. Instead, they were seeking to reform church tradition and authority to align with the scriptures. And, and Baptists are part of that Reformation tradition. And we need to recognize that. I think sometimes we, as Baptists, love talking about our independence and autonomy, and then we don't recognize how we are actually really informed by the Catholic Church tradition and the Reformation tradition. And the only way that we recognize that is when we start reading documents like the creeds and the councils and then statements of faith in other denominational denominations that preceded Baptist denominations. And we see almost the exact same wording showing up in different places. And there are a lot of studies on this, but I think we just need to recognize that there's a good reason to be cautious about authority. But just because something is misused or abused or there's a bad addition of it doesn't mean that the thing itself is bad. So the misuse of something doesn't necessitate the rejection of something in totality. So I want to uh, point out that one of the reasons beyond the bad use of tradition that we are sometimes inclined against accepting tradition as something that's important is that a lot of our modern Bible translations sort of make us prejudiced against the word tradition. So there's this Greek word, that paradosis, that's translated as tradition in every context, really, where tradition is a bad thing, where it's associated with like legalism or myths or these other things. But then whenever that word shows up in a good context, like the passing on of the gospel and the Christian faith, it, gets, it either just gets removed altogether or translated differently as something like sound doctrine, when it really it's the same word that's also translated as tradition. And so that's one of the reasons as we read our Bible, we start to hear tradition and it's always associated with something bad. Well, actually the word that that comes from is also associated with good things as well. And I think the Christian Standard Bible did a really good job on one of these texts and that is 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Um, I don't know if someone has that up, but 2 Thessalonians 2.15, if someone beats me there, just go ahead and, and read it. Or what we wrote. 
Yeah, so hold firm to the traditions that you were taught, whether by what was said or by what we wrote. Well, some translations are going to put just sound doctrine there or teaching or something like that. But, but this points out the reality that the Christian faith is comprised of tradition. The tradition is just a handing on of teaching and beliefs from one generation to the next, from one group of people to the next. And if we can step back a little bit and remember that we didn't have a fully formed and recognized canon for quite some time after Jesus and the apostles, we start to realize that the way the Christian faith was passed on was by tradition. And that's what's being referenced here is that there is sound doctrine that's handed on, sometimes through oral communication, sometimes through writing, but that actually is tradition. And it's an in- what that was made up of was an interpretation of the Christ event. So there were these individuals, the disciples and others, who looked at what Jesus did in his ministry and death and burial and resurrection and ascension, and they passed on an understanding of what those events meant for life and belief. And that's talked about in terms of tradition. And then as we progress even further, uh, the these traditions, what were being handed on, sort of come together in the community of faith. Christians start to recognize, oh, these are true traditions. This is a right understanding of those events, and these are bad traditions, and we need to reject them. And this became known as the the regula fide, right? So the rule of faith. And so it's kind of the shape of the gospel and its implications. And then as false teachers start to pop up, even before we have the New Testament documents in full, there's a rejection of what is bad based on the tradition that was handed on of what is true and faithful and right. And then as the church continues to progress and as the apostles are writing more documents and sending them to churches and the apostles eventually die and, you know, through persecution or martyrdom or whatever else, well, then the church is saying, we, we need to recognize what are the actual inspired authoritative scriptures that are in continuity with the Old Testament and that carry on this tradition that we hold. And so using this rule of faith, that's how the early church recognized in large part what documents ought to be included in the canon, and, or better yet, what documents are canonical. So when we start hating on tradition and saying tradition is always bad in in every respect, we have to recognize that the very texts of the New Testament that we have are in there because they were recognized through this tradition and rule of faith. So Christianity as a whole, and even our New Testament, is tradition that's carried on. Um, So I'll quote this guy, Michael Byrd who I think hopefully sums things up. Yeah, all churches, even evangelical churches, approach scripture through the grids of their own traditions. All churches rely on tradition and generate tradition. Tradition, therefore, is a lot like a nose. Everyone has one, and even if you cannot see your own, it is still there. We all read scripture in the context of a tradition of some kind, even if we do so unconsciously at first. We bring to the Bible a pre-understanding of the Christian faith that we have received from others, Thus, by tradition. So my point here is that from the New Testament on, tradition is really important in shaping the life and practice of Christians. 
There's, there's no way around it. And if we don't recognize it, it's, it's like Bird is saying, I think. It, it doesn't mean it's not there. It's like our nose. It, it's there whether you can see it or not. Um, the difference being that if we can recognize that it's there, we're going to see everything else more clearly. I guess that's where it's unlike your nose. If you are squinting down at your nose, you can't see anything else more clearly. But if we can recognize that we're informed by tradition in the very way that you're reading your New Testament and Old Testament is influenced by tradition that you receive from others, then it puts us in a position where we can critically evaluate the traditions that we hold. Tim. I would use the analogy of glasses. You can't, you can't necessarily see your glasses, but they help, they help to free things. In yeah, yeah. our glasses, we, we see the world through them. Um, and sometimes we talk about rose-colored glasses where you actually aren't seeing clearly. Well, maybe that's what life is like without realizing we're, we're reading the scripture in a community, and we, we might not even realize who that community is. And um, I have a little graphic for you on page 15 where it has the Bible as its base, and then all these arrows are acts of interpreting the scripture and along both sides, if we're recognizing tradition, then we have creeds and confessions of faith and catechisms and commentaries and all the rest that help keep our interpretations of scriptures within that rule of faith. Uh, but without them, I think that's where, with the boundaries gone, interpretation goes whack. And we, we just are carrying on our own ideas. And that gets a little bit maybe into what Peter is talking about in Second Peter about there, there's no prophecy by private interpretation. Uh, we stand in a community of faith and recognizing that is really helpful. It's helpful not only to instill humility, but also to ensure orthodoxy. Um, so I think I mentioned last time, I think tomorrow I'm meeting with this guy who's a oneness Pentecostal. And oneness Pentecostals sort of have gotten rid of creeds, confessions of faith, councils. I mean, they have their own, which is the, that's the, you know, the ironic thing. We, ha- we make our own. But, but they, they believe that God is one, as the Bible says, but they think that means then that Jesus, or that God took form as the Father, then as Jesus, and then as the Holy Spirit. And that's a heresy that we call modalism. Well, one of the protections against Trinitarian heresies are the fact that there are people 1,800 years ago who spent a lot of time hammering out some of these things. And for us just to reject that willy-nilly and say, my reading of the text is going to be just what I think the plain reading is, we come out with some really bad ideas. Um, And some ideas that on a larger reading of Scripture are actually heretical. Um, and, And this is not something that Baptists are immune to. Um, there, right now is a bit of a controversy. Most of you might not care about this, but there's a Trinitarian controversy right now in the Baptist world um, about the eternal subordination of the Son. And this is actually a big deal. Um, and if we start reading the creeds and councils and we start, I think, reading the Bible in light of the, the interpretive work of Christians who've gone before us, we reject that position. And for those of you who are aware of what that is, uh, we, we think that's not helpful. I, I don't think I'm ready to say those guys are heretics on their way to hell or something, but I think there needs to be a careful evaluation of what we think a plain reading of the scripture is in light of what communities of Christians have said and written for, for a couple thousand years. So I think at the bottom of page 15, I I mentioned that 
In week 11, we're going to talk more about how councils, catechisms, creeds should inform our worship and actually take place in our worship practices. But for now, I think it's just important for us to note that denominations and individual churches have a tendency to import both good and bad traditions. But there's also a kind of tradition blindness, kind of like losing your ability to smell, that keeps us from recognizing when tradition has gone stale or even rotten, and it needs to be recognized, and it needs to be disposed of when that happens. So by admitting the importance of tradition in our theology and practice, we're better able to recognize the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to tradition. We're better protected from following into tradition is, traditionalism, so this dry, dusty sort of tradition, and unbalanced tradition, the kind that subverts the Bible's authority and supremacy, as we seek to use tradition as a source for theology, as a consultive norm. And I think that language as a consultive norm is important. We consult what Christians have said for a long time about the text of Scripture in their meaning and in the way that we live them out through, through these appeals to tradition. We call on tradition as our noble, though fallible guide in all matters pertaining to faith, worship, ethics, and practice. So I, I know that for some of you, you're probably jazzed. This is great. This is right on. For some of you, this might be a little bit troublesome. But I just want to point out that even in the most staunchly anti-tradition church, tradition probably is the strongest. So, so where there's a church that says we decry all forms of tradition, as soon as you start to tinker with anything in that church, they're going to be really mad. And if you ask them, well, where in the Bible do you see that this needs to be there? That the answer is not from the Bible. It's, well, we've always done this. Well, what is that? That's tradition. So usually it's a tradition that only lasts, you know, has only been around for 75 years, not tradition that's been around for 1700 years. Um, so for example, um, I, I think that the New Testament gives us this idea of the church as a new humanity. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation come together under the kingship of Christ. And so in the church, we diminish and we don't give a lot of attention to different national emphases or political realities, you know. So when we got here, one of the things that we thought needed to change was we didn't think we needed the American flag on the stage and we didn't think we needed to be singing the national anthem in our church services because that, that is emphasizing a nation that will pass away when we're trying to emphasize Christ's kingdom that will abide forever. Well, as soon as we started touching with that or even talking about it, there was a lot of anger there. And then we, we asked the question, what biblically would motivate you to do this? And there was very little there. And then if we can look outside of our local tradition and say, well, what other groups have done this? Well, there's a great little book called The Aryan Jesus, and there are tons of pictures in this book documenting um, Nazi Christology, where you have churches that were required to have Nazi flags flying in them. And I think one look at that and we're repulsed. Well, I wonder a hundred years from now, if someone looks at pictures of, you know, some of our churches with, you know, congregations singing national anthem and American flag, will there be that same impulse? I think so. So, but what I'm trying to say is that's the kind of church where you would 
most be resisted if you start talking about tradition, but that's also where tradition is the strongest, um, but it's just not recognized. And so I, th- I want us as a church, as we think about our worship practices, to recognize that almost everything we do is formed by one tradition or another. And, and then to ask the question, what traditions are we blindly accepting and what traditions are we mindlessly cutting ourselves off from? You know, so what streams are feeding our life that might be putrid? And what streams are we cutting ourselves off from that might be giving life and refreshment to, to our worship practices? Does this all make sense? I think it does, but... You know, to some degree, and I'll be careful to try to channel it back here. When you have, this, when you have the Southern Baptist churches, you have that same type of flavor. We are Southern churches. We kind of cut themselves off larger tradition. They had their own tradition, but that tradition by separating was and ended up being a negative thing. Whereas now they've recognized and even changed their name mm-hmm. to be Great Commission Baptist because they recognize that, that that strain of trying to isolate themselves was not the most helpful. Yeah, and and I think that's natural to any denomination. It's not just Baptists. I pick on Baptists because we are Baptists, but and any time there's a denomination that rises up that emphasizes some level of autonomy, that necessarily cuts themselves off. And I think local church autonomy is really, really important, um, but I think we can almost overly lean into that to where we say, um, where, where almost our theology is more defined by a post-enlightenment radical individualism philosophy than by text of scripture in, in, in the witness of the church. There are, of course, other sources as well outside of tradition. Um, the natural world provides an important source for theology. Um, we call it natural theology. And there, there's a lot there that goes a bit beyond what I want to focus on here. But, there's, but I also think experience and culture are important sources of theology. So by experience, I mean the knowledge and relational intimacy gained through communion with God. There, there is something about our own experiences with God in the, the spirit in our life that helps shape our theology and our practice of worship. Generally, we recognize this more in our own homes. Your, your experience of the Lord and your devotions forms the way that you do the, your devotions. That, and you might not think about that, but if, if you have a pattern of kneeling when you pray and you sense a level of humility in your life when you do that and you think, I need to kneel when I pray, you've allowed your theology to be formed in part by your experience. And that can be really good. It can also be really bad sometimes, particularly when our experience is so isolated. We start to think that something is God's spirit when it's actually just what I want. And um, we, we need to work hard to distinguish that. So I think experience has to get um, kind of submitted to a lot of other things. But then also culture is an important part of our theological formulation and development. Um, we should not allow our culture to set the agenda for our theology, but we have to recognize that our practice of our theolo- theological beliefs are embedded in culture. We, we just can't be separated from that. Uh, from the, you know, in, we see this in the New Testament. The way the Lord's Supper was practiced at first was so tailored by culture. 
where the, the worship service was in the evening because they, they worked on Sundays because they didn't have weekends in America and there were people who were hungry. So it was natural to have a full meal as part of your worship gathering. Well, that's, that's something that's embedded in culture. It's, your culture forms the way that your practice takes shape. Um, our culture does that. And we can see that now more than ever as people are in all over the room, you know, with so many seats apart from us. And especially now in a, in a COVID sort of time, just there, there are things that impact our worship practices that we might not really think about. Now, I think one of the great things about COVID is that it forced us to realize we actually do adapt our worship practices to what's acceptable or not acceptable in, in society in some way, in, into what we believe about other things. So science, scientific research, science isn't a thing, scientific research influences the way that we take the Lord's Supper. Uh, Baptists, for the longest time, used wine from a common cup. And when germ theory was being discovered, there, there are Baptists writing for like Baptist press saying, we don't care what scientists find out about germs. We will always use the common cup. Well, <laughs> we don't use the common cup anymore because we realize that when we're all putting our mouth on the same thing, and then that kind of hit particularly with prohibition when the alcohol thing was gone. So then it was just juice and germs maybe stuck around a little bit better, but, but we, we, our, our practice is embedded in culture. And so we have to take that into consideration. Now, some elements of cu culture are morally good. Some are morally evil and some are morally neutral. And we need to exercise wisdom and discernment to distinguish these things. And I know that there are a lot of opinions on this. Um, this is something, though, that we have to think about all the more when we're in a multicultural place. And the Twin Cities is a multicultural place. Um, so when I was growing up, if there was a bongo drum on stage, that was of the devil. Like, the, the devil's beating that drum. Well, there are African Christians where that is probably the, the equivalent of our piano. You know, and I think what's interesting is our piano is probably... I don't know what that's equivalent of of ancient Jewish worship, maybe a harp and a cymbal or a tambourine or something. Well, we recognize that there, there are shaping influences on culture, and, and culture is just so complicated to talk about um, because th there's a way where a culture is shaped um, by something that might be associated with something negative, you know? So maybe like a guitar is associated with like, high hippies or something like that. It, but, but 20 years later, when you see a guitar, no one's thinking, oh, someone's getting high to play that guitar. You know, it's just like culture is bizarre. And as we try to navigate how that works, and then you add in multi-ethnic cultural, cultural pieces to it, it's complicated. And I think the, the guiding principle needs to be that Across the globe, there are Christians worshiping, employing different cultural features, and God is glorified across the globe with that. And instead of seeing our culture as the primary way that Christians have expressed worship for Christianity, we need to recognize, no, that started in a Palestinian sort of place, which was very different from ours. And so we need to hold culture loosely, but then also try to navigate how we can um, practice theology well in an unavoidably culturally embedded context. 
Okay, any quick questions there before I move on to our last section? Yeah. Yeah, it's so bizarre and you know, and then the intersection between culture and technology are is bizarre as well. Um yeah, there's probably a lot that we could say about this, but I just think, you know, as, especially as you look into like um post-reformation Christianity and into revivalism, the way Christian tunes were like learned quickly is they're set to things like bar tunes, you know, that everybody knew. So it's just one of those bizarre things, like how much do we leverage something that's maybe got bad connotations and how distracting is that from what we're actually trying to communicate? Um, so, so if we, you know, our, our opening congregational song this morning, if that's set to the soundtrack, like the main soundtrack to Star Wars, that's going to be so distracting that that's, that's just unhelpful. But we can sing something like All Glory Be to Christ, which is set to a song, you know, that I think the first time I heard that tune was on It's a Wonderful Life and they're singing that song at New Year's. I don't even know what the tune is, but... I'm just not distracted by that, though. You know, where Star Wars tune, I probably would be. So we have to navigate this stuff with charity and grace as, as we go. And that, I think, particularly as our church grows, and we're, we're just going to have to be a lot more open-handed in recognizing God has a bigger palate than I do for receiving what for a flavor of worship. And there will be some things I don't like, but maybe I'll grow to love it. Uh, and maybe I never will. You know, I think I'm destined to hate mushrooms for life. Prayed for the Lord to make me love them. Not happening. Okay, well, people can have mushrooms on their pizza and I'll pick it off and I'll just eat pizza with them. You know, we just have to, I think, look at our worship practices that way. Let me conclude with just a few brief comments about what our worship should look like. What's our goal then, given these realities of tradition, experience, culture, all of these things? I think we need to recognize that our goal in our worship services is neither one, to reduplicate whatever traces of corporate worship we can find in the book of Acts and in the record of the first century church. So our goal is not just to retrieve the exact things that they were doing. And I put a little footnote down there for you, but the reality is that there were multiple sects of Judaism, and then as Christians, as they became Christians, there were just multiple flavors of Christianity from the very start. And then you add into that Gentile practices, especially as a reforming from paganism. Christianity didn't look like one thing. And so a few years ago, I was talking with a couple who was like, we just need to get back to the book of Acts. I'm like, amen. But in the book of Acts, you have Christians who are sacrificing food to idols. Um, they have a whole Jerusalem council about that. You have Christians who believe the body is evil and the spirit is good. You have Christians who don't believe in the Holy Spirit. Well, we just need to realize that theological formation takes place over time. And so the first reception of Christianity is usually messy. And so it's like if, you know, we look at some of these countries that are receiving the Bible in their language for the first time, or a missionary passed through, they heard the gospel and left, and 
it's messed up. And that's why you need Titus to go to set in order what remained, to appoint elders and show what gospel living is and all of these sorts of things. So we're not trying just to reduplicate whatever we might find in Acts, nor are we trying to develop an innovative and completely new form or expression of worship. So we're not trying to just come up with our own thing. We, we want to stand on the shoulders who've gone, of those who've gone before us. So we take culture and tradition together, seeking to appropriately express the theology of the church in our unique cultural context. This expression is not as black and white as one might like, but it's actually a good thing. However, both tradition and culture help us find a way forward where the scriptures are par- not particularly clear. Helps us attend to the circumstances, that is the expression of practice, and the accompanying elements um, that, that come with that, the commands of Scripture. So I'm going to read this quote, and then I'll end here because we're on our last minute. Um, in public worship, there are elements such as preaching, confession of sin, prayer, baptism, the supper, singing, and almsgiving. Those are things that are commanded in Scripture. And there are circumstances, that is the appointed time and order of services, liturgical forms, architecture, musical style, and so forth making everything in the church's worship and church order an element that is raising it to a command of scripture, you know, apart from biblical warrant, is legalistic. Making everything a circumstance that is saying we just get to do whatever we feel like doing in spite of biblical command is antinomian. Since there, there were matters not specifically commanded in scripture, decisions regarding circumstances were left to sanctified wisdom and churches were free to change them at their discretion in the light of their time and place. So we need the Holy Spirit to guide us as we appropriate tradition and culture as we seek to form our worship practices.